Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Johnny Evison is one of my favorite authors, and um, I introduced his book, uh, West of Here, and fell in love with it, and then came Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, which I almost recommend weekly, and it's going to be a movie soon, but it's still one of my most favorite books of all time. And now I have a new favorite book, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. I devoured this book. It was wonderful. It has so many layers to it, and it's fun, but it's also heartwarming. It's also tragic. It's it's the human life, but told in a way that just will take you right into the book. Please welcome Johnny Evison. Thanks for coming out. So, um, when I was 17 years old, I went and, uh, I moved from uh, Seattle, Washington, down to Sunnyvale, California, to go live in a senior citizen motor court with my grandmother, who was agoraphobic. And the idea was that I was going to start taking community college classes, and I was going to be her caregiver. You know, later in life, I would become a professional caregiver. But this was kind of my first, my first, uh, I guess, my first experience with caregiving. Um, she was about eighty years old at the time, but kind of an old eighty. Um, she drank uh, about a half rack of Schaefer beer, Tall Boys, a day out of a straw. And smoked two packs of Pall Malls and then just sat in a chair all day long with two glaucoma, glaucoma in both eyes and just kind of stared in the, um, in the direction of the television. But um, actually, I mean, it sounds bad, but she was actually pretty spunky and pretty happy and pretty upbeat. And she was really happy to have me because, you know, I grew up in a family of uh, bodybuilders who were all health fanatics. I mean, if you can't tell. Um, they were all health fanatics. Uh, masculinity in crisis has been an ongoing theme for me in my books because, well, you know, all the males in my family couldn't pass any reflective surface without, you know, stopping to, you know, check out the striation on the, you know, on their tricep or, you know, lift their calf up or whatever. So she was really happy to have me um, because, you know, I smoked like a chimney at 17 and I like to drink cheap beer and uh, I like Rockford Files as much as the next guy. So we just sit there for hours. A lot of times I'd skip class. And um, um, what I'm getting at is here, uh, she was not the norm for this park. Um, you know, I entered into it at 17. You know, the, the, the prevailing wisdom in this this country, in the West anyway, is that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And um, there's been a, you know, there was a concerted effort on the part of advertisers and programmers about, you know, I'd say about 25, 30 years ago to just stop paying attention to the greatest generation, even though they were still the biggest money demo, uh, you know, still had more disposable income than anybody. Um, the, the, the wisdom was that they're just, that you can't change them. You know, their brand loyalty is too strong, so we're going to stop throwing money at them. We're going to stop advertising towards them. We're going to stop uh, We're going to stop programming towards them. And so, you know, gone went Golden Girls and gone went Matlock. And um, my experience at 17 living in this park was quite the opposite, though. I mean, aside from my grandma, who was sort of, you know, stunted because of her condition and so forth, uh, I'd say, you know, at least half of the women in this senior citizen motorhome park were widows who had, you know, recent widows who had survived their husbands. And uh, 
I was, you know, I've been thinking about this for 30 years because I was really inspired at watching these women in their late 70s and early 80s totally reinvent themselves, uh, you know, change their whole political ideologies, uh, you know, 80-year-old women starting to, you know, join uh, community theater and things like that. And uh, so, you know, when I kind of conceived of this novel, which I've been kind of carrying around for a long time, I sort of conceived of it as a, as a coming of old age. Because um, my first novel, All About Lulu, was a coming-of-age novel. And um, my third novel, Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, I would characterize as sort of a coming-of-middle-age novel. And so this sort of repeats the, you know, sort of uh, finishes the life cycle. This is sort of a coming-of-old-age coming uh, novel. You know, I said I have masculinity in crisis as a theme of mine. But really, I only have one sort of overarching theme in all my books, as different as they are. And every time I write a book... A critic is really quick to point out that it's a departure from my last book, but really I only have one theme and that's reinvention because I have to believe we can change. I have to believe that we can reinvent ourselves and sort of inch our way towards some sort of self-realization and become better or more expansive people, you know, with our whatever, seven to nine decades here on earth, whatever we're lucky enough to get. So, um, what did I write? I'll, I'll just say, I'll, I'll read, you know, also I was raised uh, exclusively by women because my dad left me when I was about nine years old and, and, uh, and my brothers had all moved out. And so it was, I was raised, uh, you know, pretty much exclusively by my sisters and my mom and, and, and then later, you know, lived with my grandmother. But what I said about this book, just because it's probably a little more, uh, I probably said it better here than I'm going to say it out loud. In the acknowledgments it, uh, that this book... Uh, for the courageous women in my life, the women who have nurtured me, educated me, disciplined me, sacrificed for me, suffered for me, and never forsaken me. My mom, my grandma, my sisters, my wife, and my third grade teacher, Mrs. Hanford, to name a few. The women who have often settled for less, the women who have never quite gotten their fair share, who have soldiered on in the face of inequity, frustration, and even despair, who have forgiven beyond reasonable measure, absorbed beyond reasonable expectation, and given, 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 with no promise of recompense. Uh, I wanted to thank them with this portrait of one woman inspired by all of them from the moment of her conception to her last breath. So that was kind of my, um, that was my impetus. Yeah, don't you just want to hug me now? I'm, I'm about, I almost cry every time I read it too. That's the sad part. Um, uh, I, I cry a lot too. The more, uh, you know, Harriet like still lives with me. You know, I, I never done this. I think, you know, all my books are basically just disguised character studies as different as they are really i'm just finding different ways to disguise the fact that i just write character studies over and over and with west of here i went so far as to you know have 48 limited points of view tell the story and i had a bifurcated timeline by 120 years and this big magical realist streak but really it was just a character study of one town it was just a, a, a character study of place and uh but never i don't think have i spent invested so much in just one one character you know and and so my mo as a, as a novelist is just to really just get out of my own way um when i sit down to write i just want to inhabit the character completely i don't want to smell the coffee on my own breath i don't want to i don't want my character to be my galley slave i don't want to um move them around to suit my purposes and themes i just i i inhabit them uh and, and then just let them lead me through the narrative landscape and um I never really risk getting lost because the way I frame character is is the same way as I characterize story is that, that you know, there's these two signposts and one of them is, uh, you know, this is your reality. This is the character right here. You know, this is, here's their birth order and this is how old they are and this is their job and this is where they live and 
and this is their idealized reality over here. This is this is the person they want to be. And so, uh, you know, my characters by the end of a novel usually get to about here. But, you know, that's something. Like, in, Craig's probably the hero of West of here, and all he does after 600 pages is quit smoking pot and move to Aberdeen. But for Craig, that's kind of a big step, and I think it's enough to be hopeful. Um so inhabiting Harriet at first, I, I had to get at her from the outside in, and, and the result was for the first four drafts of this book, it was terrible. It was stultifyingly linear and, and suffocating. And, and uh, In fact, when I had my first editorial conversation with my, my editor, he was like, well, I, I don't like Harriet. And I'm like, well, you don't like Miss Daisy either. And he's like, yes, but Jessica Tandy's performance won us over. And that's when I had my aha moment with this book. And uh, I always have an aha moment with a book, but generally it's, it's when you're composing the first draft and you're, you're working your way through the narrative arc for the first time, you realize, ah, this is what I'm doing. And then you go back and get rid of the first 75 pages and reverse engineer everything you figured out. And then, but this was four drafts before I had my aha moment. And what it was, was, is that line about Jessica Tandy's performance. I realized I had taken myself so far out of it because I don't want to be authorial. I want to give the character, I want to give the, I want to give a genuine experience to the reader, but I take myself so far out of it as a writer and a voice that it was just, I used just such a small aperture that it was just, it was just suffocating. I was just like, you know, Harriet pads to the kitchen in her slippers and puts the tea water on to boil and looks at the window and thinks about something that happened in 1958. And then the water starts to hiss and Harriet, you know, stacks some envelopes on the thing. And then she pours it, you know, because I just watched my mom's life become so small. And so I was getting at Harriet from the outside in and just sort of, uh, having this sort of objective reportage on her life. Cause like my mom is the same age as Harriet born the same year. And I'm like, mom, come over and see the kids today. She lives a mile away. And she's like, well, I got to wash my hair. And I'm like, mm, okay. I mean, that's like my, that's a day for my mom now. Um, and so, you know, I started to get at Harriet that way and it just, it was just really laying there. And then I had my aha moment and realized what I'd been, that I'd really missed a great opportunity with this novel because all my narratives are fractured. I don't like linear timelines. I go out of my way to, to, to tell the story in a nonlinear way because I think it's more interesting. But here, here we're dealing with memory and reflection and association, three very nonlinear processes. So this was the perfect opportunity to write a nonlinear narrative. And so I kind of conceived of, uh, you know, I, I take the title from the old show that some of you will remember, maybe you too, a couple of people, maybe most of them, where this guy, and it, it was much, it was smaltzy and, and much more romantic than my voice, but it was a starting point. And this, the host, Ralph Edwards, and I just remember it because it was still in syndication when I was a kid. You know, the host, Ralph Edwards, would bring somebody on, usually like a celebrity or something like that, and they would fly people in and surprise him, and they would narrate his life. But I wanted my voice to be much more menacing and less sentimental than that. And I, I really kind of dug down deeper and really started to, to, uh, to, um, this, this is a long explanation. Sorry. I, I really have no control. This is another reason I write because I can edit myself. I can't do that once I start talking. And so, uh, I wanted this to be Harriet telling her own story the way she might've told it if everything that happened in her life didn't happen. It's, Harriet's idealized self telling this story. So this, the book then had now, it had two narrative voices. One, which is the second person voice, which is Harriet kind of talking to herself from her idealized self. And then there was the third person coverage of Harriet's, the, you know, the week leading up to the cruise and then the seven day cruise. And the advantage of this second voice is that like, you know, all memory and reflection, it's, it, it's, it's, 
it works by triggers. So I didn't just, I, I'm, I'm able to hop all over Harriet's life from her first breath to, to, you know, to the very end of her life, but it's not random. It's not like I just wrote Harriet's story and shuffled it and threw it out there because there are triggers that happen, you know, throughout the cruise. There's, there's a reason we think about the things we think about, you know, and so triggers happen throughout the novel. So all of this is a long way of explaining that these two voices work as a companion together to make the novel revelatory at almost every juncture. Every time two of these chapters sort of work together, the reader has a revelation that forces them to sort of recontextualize everything they already know about Harriet. So every two chapters or so this, this happens. And um, what I've discovered is, is I can't read from both sides of the book because it will spoil things so this is all i actually am coming back here this big spiral actually had a point which is that i'm just going to read from the harriet voice which tends to be a little antic it's very light on its toes but i just want you to know that it's not 300 pages of this voice because that would get a little much but everything i'm going to read tonight is from that side of the voice so it's just kind of a warning because 300 pages of it would would be a little much but you're only going to get about eight so just want you to know that in between we're following harriet in real time and, uh, you know, I'm also saddled by, uh, it's just, there's only a few chapters I can read and they're not necessarily the best chapters or my favorite chapters or the most illuminating chapters or by any means the funniest chapters, but I think they'll at least serve to give you a little taste of Harriet in different, different, uh, stages of her life. So we'll start at the very beginning, November 4th, 1936, Harriet at zero. Here you come, Harriet Nathan, tiny face pinched, eyes squinting fiercely against the glare of surgical lamps at a newly renovated Swedish hospital, high on Seattle's first hill. It's an unseasonably chilly Wednesday in autumn and the papers are calling for snow. Roosevelt by a landslide, workers grumbling in flint. In Spain, a civil war rages. Meanwhile, out in the corridor, your father paces the floor, shirt sleeves rolled to the elbow. Clutching an unlit Cuban cigar, he checks his wristwatch. He's got a three o'clock downtown. By the end of the week, Harriet, you'll leave the hospital wrapped in a goose-down swaddler knit by your ailing grandmother. Your father will miss his three o'clock today, but let's not get ahead of ourselves here. They don't call it labor for nothing. Let's not forget the grit and determination of your mother. All that panting and pushing, all that clenching and straining, eyes bulging, forehead slick with sweat. Let's take a moment to appreciate the fact that she won't begrudge you any of it, though you'll always be your father's girl. Here you come, better late than never, a face presentation. Not the boy your father so desperately wanted, but here you come anyway, all six pounds, three ounces of you. Button nose, conical head, good color, a swirl of dark hair atop your little crown, and a healthy pair of lungs, too. Listen to you wail, Harriet, as the doctor slaps your fanny, your cries, phlegmy and protracted. Do you hear them? These are virtually the last sounds you will utter until well after your second birthday. Yes, Harriet, you were an exceptionally quiet child. Too quiet. Exhibit A, December 31st, 1936. For the rest of their lives, your parents will regale you and anyone else who will listen with a rollicking story about a certain New Year's Eve party on the North End. The story involves a bassinet, into which your father, in a moment of stone clarity and admirable foresight, fastened you by your ankles and armpits for safety, using his own necktie and a leather belt from the host's closet. 
The party is a triumph, as the story goes, with Bacchus leading the charge. The music is brassy. The walls are thrumming. So frenzied the celebration, in fact, that amid their merrymaking, revelers fail to notice the upended bassinet in the corner. That is until whiz kid Charlie Fitzsimmons, the firm's youngest partner, lipstick on his collar, ladies' underpants adorning the crown of his head, nearly trips on you on his way back from the punch bowl. It will not be the last time Charlie Fitzsimmons takes notice of you. Would you look at that glass of milk, he shouts. For an instant, the party is struck dumb as everyone turns their attention to the corner. Look at Harriman Nathan's girl. She'll make a hell of a judge, observes Charlie. And, of course, hilarity ensues. The story never fails, and you're the punchline, Harriet. There you are, for God only knows how long, upside down, your poker face turning from red to blue to purple, your little gray eyes gazing impassively at the world as your parents ring in a prosperous 1937. You never made a peep. This is your life, Harriet. The beginning, anyway. September 9th, 1957, Harriet at 20. Look at you, Harriet, a grown woman. No longer a glass of milk, but a tall drink of water. Okay, not so tall. Maybe a little on the squat side. Maybe a little pudgy to hear your mother tell it. But your hygiene is fastidious. Your bouffant is formidable. And you're still quiet, which makes you popular among lawyers and men alike. But you've no time for men. You're a professional. Marriage is one negotiation that can wait. First, your own apartment, an automobile, a promotion. The sky's the limit. Here you are, Harriet, at 4th and Union, top floor, just three months removed from your associate's degree. And not your father's firm, either. Sure, you had a push, a few advantages in life, but basically you got here on your own. No, you'll never be a lawyer, but a crack legal assistant is not out of the question. You love your job. Okay, maybe love is strong. But prepping documents, writing summaries, filing motions, all of it agrees with you. Look at you, downtown girl, chic but pragmatic, shopping at Frederick and Nelson, lunching at the Continental Buffet. Let's be honest, though. Let's talk about the problem that has no name. All these years later, they're still slapping your fanny. Your salary doesn't stretch that far. The work is exhausting. As both a woman and an assistant, you're expected to work harder. And for what? A string of pearls, a sleek automobile, a slap on the can from a junior partner... It'll be six more years before Frieden exposes the feminine mystique. Twelve more before Yokohama proclaims woman as the nigger of the world. But by God, Harriet Chance, you're determined to buck your disadvantages. Okay, maybe determines a bit strong. How about resign to them? The least you can do is achieve independence. Tackle adulthood on your own terms. Put that associate's degree to some purpose. Make a name for yourself, Harriet Nathan. The truth you're not telling anyone especially not your father, is that amid the administrative whirlwind of the office, the hustle and bustle of downtown, the ceaseless tedium of legal research, you yearn for something less exhausting. For stability, predictability, and yes, a Christmas hearth festooned with stockings. You yearn too, Harriet, for a man. Come on, admit it. So what is it about this new young building superintendent that catches your attention in the hallway upon your return from lunch? As he explains to your boss, in layman's terms, even you can understand, the difference between AC and DC. Surely it's not his stature, he's two inches shorter than you. And as it turns out, he's not all that young at 33. There is, however, a squareness to his shoulders, a symmetry to his face, a quiet confidence in his bearing. 
Not just the firm, but the whole building. All that concrete and steel, all that electricity, all that plumbing is reliant upon his capability. And you're not alone. The whole office is impressed by his confidence, charmed by his forthrightness. Even the partners, those pompous autocrats bulging at the waist, those experts who defer to no one, treat this man as an equal. But here's the thing. Tending an elevator, a fan, a heating duct, in his neatly creased work trousers, pen-like clutched between his teeth as he reaches for his tool belt, exposing the gray Semper Fi tattoo on his inside wrist, he strikes you as more than their equal. Harriet Nathan, meet Bernard Chance, your Valentine for 1957. Okay, we'll skip way ahead now. Uh, October 30 or October 1st, 2013, Harriet at 76. You're still calling Deer Park the new cinema, though they've been there for years. Look at that adorable couple down front, the ones who brought their own popcorn. The little hunchback with the crooked lipstick and the scarecrow and the yellow pants and the marine cap. Look at them arm in arm, gimping down the aisle, quibbling over where to sit. Why, it's Mr. and Mrs. Bernard Chance, looking to all the world like a perfectly matched pair. Yes, 54 years of cohabitation as the two of you behaving like bookends. Perfectly matched opposing supports, forced by proximity into cooperation. And really, that's no small accomplishment, Harriet. So go easy on yourself the rest of the way. The rest could have happened to anybody. The movie is forgettable, as in you couldn't remember it if you had to. Something Irish or about Ireland with a guy and a girl. But that's not the point. The point is it's movie night. And the chances are still making an effort late in life, though neither one of you likes to drive after dark. And my God, it's nearly $10 a ticket, even for seniors. Not to mention you haven't seen a good film in two years. Not that you can remember that one either. You can't remember getting old. You can't remember when exactly you started carrying umbrellas just in case. When you started scheduling your weekly hair washings, oversalting your feud, or reusing Ziploc bags. It happened gradually. The, we- the years just wore you away, dulled your edges, leached the color from your face, and flattened you out like river rocks. Again, not the point. The point, not to belabor it, is this. You're old, sapless and enfeebled, especially Bernard. And yet, you're still trying, both of you, still able. The world shakes its fist and rolls its eyes at you as you gum up traffic and slow down lines and pay for every blasted thing and exact change. But by God, the chances are not about to cloister themselves at home with their cream corn and their network television. No, they're still out there wrestling with the world at large, still going toe to toe with progress, still absorbing change slowly. But when you turn to Bernard in the glow of the credits, expecting to share his vague disenchantment with the evening's lukewarm cinematic fare, he looks dazed and frightened, and something else, unreachable. Dear, you say, are you okay? Yes, fine, he assures you, but his tongue is heavy, and he sounds a million miles away, and he's slow to rise from his seat, and it's not a cautious slow. You reason that he must have nodded off during the film, heaven knows you almost did, and that the sleep state has left him disoriented. On the trip home, in spite of time-worn custom, you do the driving, and he doesn't make a fuss over the fact. In the passenger seat, he slumps in silence, and by no means a thoughtful silence. Something smells like urine. At some point during that forgettable movie, Harriet, your husband has forgotten a great deal more. This is your life, Harriet Chance, falling off a cliff. Only later will you discover that Bernard has had an event. 
let's call it a stroke, and that it's not likely, it's likely not the first. Only later will you learn about the plaque on his brain. But let's face it, Harriet, you hardly have time to take it all in. It happens so fast. In three months' time, the police will find him wandering Klein's spit in his pajamas. In six months, he'll not remember your name. In a year, he won't remember his own. So I'll just do one more little short one and then just talk. Uh, May 7th, 1955, Harriet at 18. Look at you, Harriet, the week before senior prom, all decked out in champagne taffeta for your dress fitting. Look at you, chin up, back straight, as your mother sits nearby impatiently, offering unsentimental commentary. Terrence Osier is to be your date. He of the debate club, captain of the basketball team, and your parents roundly approve. He comes from a good family. Father's a circuit court judge. Mother's a Nordstrom. They're members at both the university club and the tennis club. The truth is, in spite of his pedigree, Terrence Osier doesn't do much for you with his dirty blonde cowlicks and his smug self-assuredness. But then, most boys don't do much for you. Your father is sparing no expense on the dress. He's treating this prom like some kind of debut. You've been starving yourself for three weeks with more than a little coaching from your mother. And it's working. You feel good about yourself, even though you sense something vaguely wrong with this state of affairs. The truth is, the pressure you feel to be thin is mostly external. Who are you starving yourself for, Harriet? Not Terence Osier. The A-line, is design- the A-line design is supposed to be slimming. But it's all wrong, your mother says. The hem is too high. Your kneecaps look like frozen game hens. Your ankles look fat. When the woman tailor, who does not disagree, brings the hem down, you look squat. It's enough to exasperate your mother. You've been absorbing it your whole life, Harriet. Every time you pick up a fork or form an opinion, you're sick of it. Sick of wondering what's wrong with you that you can't please your mother. Like a wicked den mother, she knits and picks and criticizes you constantly. So much so that you're convinced she doesn't even mean to. That it's a compulsion. Why does she seek always to improve you as though it's her life's work? And why do you take it to heart? Is it because you already know that you'll never be, be all that you could have been? Because you'll never be able to tell your own story the way you want to tell it? Because you haven't got the courage? Isn't it enough that your father believes in you, Harriet? Your father, whom, according to your mother, is naive in spite of all appearances and doesn't understand the ways of the world? Your father, who's been blinded by his rose-colored glasses? Your father, who wants to see a princess in every warthog? Your father, who has no idea what it is to be a woman? You may be his princess. He may think the world of you. He may pull some strings for you, honey, but you'll always be a woman in a man's world, mark my words. And nobody wants a girl with fat ankles. Okay, so not the first time your mother's been wrong. Oh no, not by a long shot. Turns out Terrence Osier doesn't give a whit about fat ankles. Terrence Osier is primarily interested in breasts. He spends 40 minutes after the dance, all chin and elbows, groping to get at your ample pair in the back seat of the green and yellow Chevy Bel Air his parents bought him. But not before Terrence wins a debate on the subject, which is, let's be honest, brief. Not that you have any interest in being fondled, rather because you always aim to please, Harriet. The fact is, any sort of petting makes you vastly uncomfortable. Alas, the tiny expensive zipper on that dress only buys you five minutes. But lucky for you, Terence Osier is far from adept at the art of unclasping brassiers. Not as fast as some, <clears throat> with a little more experience. Or you might not have escaped with what was left of your dignity. The takeaway here, Harriet, is that there's nothing wrong with you. 
You've got big ankles and an unhappy mother. You're versatile and absorbent. You can do a lot with that as a woman or a paper towel. So what are you waiting for, child? This is your life, Harriet. Go out and get it. Okay, so. So you see what I mean? It's not 300 pages of that. That would be kind of exhausting, I think. There's, a, there's you know, I'd, I'd say 70% of the book is actually the real-time, uh, you know, third-person report of, uh, reportage of Harriet's. And see, like all those, you know, I wish I could read more. I wish I could, uh, but I, I just can't, or I'll just spoil things. I already spoiled Bernard's, you know, Alzheimer's, but... So, um, has anybody got up anywhere they'd like to start talking, please? <laughs> just don't, I just, I'll just sit here and spiral without you. I'm tired. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I think the movie will premiere, uh, probably at Sundance in February of next year. And then, then I don't know when the studio release would be. Um, I really had very little to do with it. Um, I didn't write the screenplay. I had no interest in writing the screenplay. Um, Rob Burnett from worldwide pants, uh, you know, Letterman's production company, uh, wrote it and directed it. And Donna Gigliotti, uh, who just did uh, silver linings playbook produced it. And, uh, Paul Rudd ostensibly plays me, which is awesome because he's better looking funnier and everyone likes him. Uh, and, um, I'm, I've just tried to have a healthy attitude about this. I didn't want to be a precious artist about it. And like, you know, the dictates between a 300 page novel and a, a two hour film are just so radically different that I don't, I don't know how they could ever do a book justice, frankly. Um, I thought one flew over the cuckoo's nest was a pretty great movie. Uh, and guess what? Ken Kesey hated it, you know, because he was being kind of precious about it. He thought, you know, well, he, he didn't have his first person narrative, but you know, I mean, short of putting a hat brim on a camera lens, I don't know really how you're going to achieve that in, in film. Um, so I, I just look at this as something I've been peripherally involved with and got paid handsomely for, and they've been nice enough. You know, I got to go down on set and, and consult some, and they've been everybody's been very gracious. I got to meet all the cast and everything, and um, so when I sit down to see it, I'm not going to really uh, – I, I don't really have a sense of propriety over it. Like, oh, you know, oh, what did they change? I mean, I know that there are a few characters written out, and, uh, you, know, the, you know, I'm sure that – I read a script – years ago but i uh, i think it'll probably start about 30 percent into the book because you hollywood loves a road movie um so you know i've already swallowed all those pills and i i think i saw that the relationship between paul uh rudd and uh craig roberts is amazing i mean i i think they've really got the repartee that will do the book justice and i just you know i think i'm gonna have a good time with it no matter what you know it's been great i mean it, it you know it was free money <laughs> <laughs> That never happened to me before. Free money. I have to work my ass off to make money. I got to sell books to people like two and three times just to be a best-selling author. That or I got to sell books to people who don't even read. That is the reality. You had a question as well. How was your time in California? I mean, as a teenager, during 17. It was good. I mean, you know, I... I, I I didn't really have a lot of friends, you know. I mean, I was hanging around with a bunch of 79-year-old women for the most part. And uh, I eventually started, you know, meeting friends at community college a little bit. And um, I spent about three years bouncing around community college. Just never got any degree. Never took any writing classes or anything like that. Um, and then I, I, I moved back to Seattle. I was homesick. Um, but I'm actually a fifth-generation Californian. I was born in Santa Clara. Uh, both of my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents that were all born in Inglewood, you know, in, in South Central L.A. Back when it was just, uh, you know, it was just orchards back then. But, but I'm, I'm not an Angelino. I'm not. I, I, I consider myself a Washington native for sure. But if I was going to live somewhere besides Washington or Oregon, I think it might be Colorado. 
Legal, legal weed and mountains, two things I really like. Yeah. Uh, not in Seattle. I live on half the time on Bainbridge Island and half the time out in the Olympic Peninsula in a place called Squim, which is uh, actually a pretty good transition because Squim is a retirement community. Um, and, and, you know, I really want this, I, I really want this book to be sort of an antidote to, to, to this 30, this, this trend of uh, marginalizing the elderly. And I think there's, it's part of the zeitgeist because there's other things going on now that are getting better too. Like Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda have got this show. And like, I think, I think things are getting better for, for the marginalized elderly. But I mean, the fact is, I think we're all guilty of it. Like I, I do it all the time. I live in Squim. And so, you know, if I'm in the grocery store and I see a line with seven people in it, and then I see a line with two old ladies in it. I get right in the line with seven people because I, I've seen it a million times. It's like up comes the giant circa 1960s purse with the four clasps, but not until everything's rung up. And in she goes for the readers. And then here comes the checkbook. But first, she's got to flip through it page by page through the, to the back of the register to make sure it's current. And only then does she start filling out the checkbook. Oh, wait. Out comes a coupon book and, you know, a big stack of coupons. And then the, the, the you know, the checkers got to go through them. And then oh, back one more time for the circular. She hands it to the checker. The checker's like this expired four months ago, hands it back. She's like, oh, dear, I have the newer one. And she gets that one out. And, you know, you're just in the back of the line going, Jesus Christ, my dogs are in the car. Um, so, I mean, I do it, too. But, you know, I mean, the fact is just because people slow down a little and just because my mom can't get much more done than washing her hair. I mean, it's just I think it's a, this weird, unique sickness that we just marginalize our elderly so much because you know in just about every other culture i can think of the you know the the elders are considered the wisest or you know they've had the most experience they've lived through the most um so you know i'm gonna go old people right you know i'm really hitting the 80 to demo hard here working myself right out of a job now that i think about it uh anybody else got a question Started voting differently. Everything she'd probably been hatching. That my other grandma did that too. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of women were just suffocated under patriarch. I mean, my my other grandmother was Mrs. Harry C. Hank. Man, I didn't I, I didn't even know her name. I mean, she was just Mrs. Mail said Mrs. Harry C. Hank, and then after after Pop Hank died, she was just like she was a spitfire. Uh, I, I should say that Harriet's kind of an older seventy eight. Originally, I conceived of her of being about eighty five. Uh, but then I wanted Caroline to be of a certain age and I knew what age Harriet. And so like when I did the math and she's more like my best friend's mom, who's the same age as Harriet, but she's like, she's much more in, in Harriet's life. It makes sense while she's a little older of a 78 for a number of reasons, physically because of her osteoarthritis, but mentally for a number of reasons and experientially and so forth. But, uh, um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I know plenty of, you know, my mom's, I would say a lot spunkier than Harriet. So I don't want to offend anybody. There's nobody that old here. 
Oh, no. Come on. You're 64, 65. You're just old enough to get a discount. Okay. Yeah, so I don't want to insult you. She's an older... I'm sure you have friends that are a little, you know, a, you know, a little older than you, even though they're the same age. So, you know, there's that. I just had to issue that caveat. Well, I grew up in bands, you know, I was in punk bands when I was like 13, I was touring the West Coast in punk bands and stuff. A lot of my bandmates went on to, you know, Stoney went on to Pearl Jam and Ben went on to Soundgarden and had band with Steve Turner and Mark Arm from Bud Honey. And so, so I was used to being on stage. I don't, I don't really, I don't love it. I like this because uh, I get to continue the conversation. You know, I'm, the whole act of conceit in writing a novel is just, uh, 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 you know, it's just a desperate cry to connect. And, um, you know, uh, I look at the reader as my collaborator. You know, I feel like the reader's got to do everything I do backwards and heels. And so uh, I really, I, you know, this, you, you guys are all readers. So like I'm talking to the end user and my collaborators. So like it's actually a good opportunity for me. If I can get people before they read the book and I can charm them, then they'll buy two or three books too. You know I mean? It has advantages. It gets exhausting. This is my 15th city in 15 days. I've done 17 events in 15 days. And just about every city, don't anyone try to get me drunk tonight, please. I'm just glad because almost everywhere I go, I've got like some sort of old friend or some bookseller with a wild hair up their ass that needs to take me out. And it's like every night I close down a bar and then I got to get up at 4.30 to 6.30 in the morning and get to an airport. And I'm just kind of a wreck. I'm, I'm doing good tonight because I got home early in Boulder last night. And I'm going to try to make that a trend and try to get home, you know, kind of early tonight. So that part of it, and, and I miss my kids. If I was 28 and single, this would be heaven. If I was 28 and single, I'd never come home. I would love it. But, uh, but, but you know, I got two young kids. I got a two-and-a-half-year-old and a six-year-old. And I miss them like, you know, after two days, I just, it's just, you know, scrolling through pictures of them on the phone and getting kind of sad. I just hope I make it. I mean, I'm, I got my, I got my liver. I mean, I got I gotta make some lifestyle changes. I think, because uh, really, I'm, I'm, I would characterize myself as a, as a heavy drinker, but uh, not, not the. Uh, I don't have the uh, alcoholic pathology like the vicious cycles. It doesn't. It actually, you know, is really good for me. I feel it, I don't have the cycle of guilt in the morning when I wake up after a bender. I actually feel like it's like uh, I feel redeemed. And it's, I write great because I, I write better with a hangover because I can get out of my own way easier. I'm only using a small portion of my brain when I write. Most of it is just getting out of my own way. And if I have a slight hangover, everything about drinking really works for me. It makes me happier. I self-medicate. It works great. But I'm worried about, you know, my liver and that, you know. So I, gotta, I think I've probably got to either probably get on some kind of meds or else just, be, you know, train to be a decathlete or something. I've got to do something to slow down because it's just a constant – you know, the wheels are just always spinning. I'm not smart. They just, I just metabolize everything really fast. So like I have like friends, like my big friend, Aaron from Wisconsin, he's like 350 pounds, six foot five. I mean, that guy's just begging me to stop at the end of the night. I can drink that guy under the table and I'm like, you know, hundred, I'm half his weight, but I just metabolize this stuff so fast. I just burn right through it. So I hope I'll be, you know, hopefully an able 90 year old, hopefully, and just hopefully, you know, 80, 80, right? If I, I mean, if I had to like hedge my bets and just, I'd, I'd take 80 right now from where I'm standing, the way my, my, my lifestyle is. Even if there's a possibility I'd make it 10 past that right now, I'd say 80 because I'm frankly, sometimes I'm scared 65 might be it. Like, 
Yeah, well, that's only three years. I turned 47 Sunday, so we'll see. But I do, I think at the end of this tour, I'm just going to dry out for a while. And, you know, I never want to quit drinking completely, so I have to protect it. So I'm going to start just drinking, you know, one or two nights a week or something. I can do it. I can do it. I haven't had a cup of coffee in three weeks, you know, because it's just, it's bad on my stomach on the road. I haven't smoked pot hardly for the whole tour. So, I mean, I could probably quit drinking. That's my big one, though. That's the big bugaboo is drinking. I do, I know, so bad. I missed my, what do you, what do you got for me? Well, I spent three decades trying not to be my dad, and then I woke up in my 30s and realized I became my mom. Um, I'm just like her. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I, I don't know if I – I I only know this. I don't know if I owe this to being raised by women or whatever. I I know that I I think I just have one strength as a writer, really. I don't really consider myself all that lyrical uh, or definitely not that intelligent or uh, – uh, I'm not a high concept guy with my storylines, but like I'm very empathic. I'm, I'm very good at just being able to jump through the empathic window and actually inhabit other characters. I've been able to inhabit a, a, a dizzying range of characters, and, and I think you know um, all of them. I think pretty much ring true because I really believe that uh, you know inside every character is the universal and if you really get out of your own way and you just really accept the fact that you're crawling inside to a, bo- a body that's lived eight decades and experienced what's it's experienced and and you absorb all the life experiences that person has had and you absorb what it is to be a woman and and and, and all that stuff then 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 the decisions become really natural the narrative decisions become natural the way the character talks becomes really natural all of it like, i mean i think i think most people somewhere have this ability to do this you know and I've just kind of honed it, I guess, probably because I don't like myself very much. So it's really easy just to kind of get into somebody else. But for that reason, I'm always very sympathetic to my characters because I have to live through it with them. You know what I mean? I never forsake my characters. I put them through hell, but I never forsake them in the long run because, you know, why would I do that to myself? Sure. Um. I came to writing out of a sense of need after my uh, my sister, who is my primary caregiver, died when I was about let's see, I was four and a half, and then my my family just exploded from that point. My mom and dad divorced after twenty five years. My dad moved us up to Washington and moved himself back to the Bay Area, and um, I was I was just kind of struggling. I had a lot of external stuff going on in my life that wasn't good, and I had uh, I had I had been the early, I had been the youngest kid in my kindergarten class, but then I also skipped a grade. I skipped second grade and went straight to third grade. So I was like two years younger than everybody. And so after all that stuff happened and we moved up here, I was due to start fourth grade because I'd had the third grade curriculum. But my mom decided to just put me back in third grade because she thought it would be easier for me socially. And so immediately what happened was I'd already had the curriculum. I'd already done all the penmanship. I knew everything there was to know about the triceratops and whatever the third grade curriculum was. And poor Mrs. Hanford, who I thanked to my acknowledgments, I, I really kind of credit her for saving my life. She, she, well, she also had to save her classroom because I was a huge distraction. So she would let me just sit in the corner and write. I decided that I wanted to be a writer just because I don't know. I liked I liked I liked doing it. I liked reflecting on it, and I liked to sit down and write. And um, she really fostered that, and at the same time made her class manageable. And so, actually, by the end of third grade, 
I had, uh, I went to this thing called a, the Young Writers Conference or the Young Authors Conference or something like that. And I had written this story called The King Without a Crown and it was actually published. You know, Seattle Pacific University published, you know, I don't know, a hundred copies or something, but it went to all the libraries in the state kind of thing. And so it was my auspicious, you know, entrance into publishing and then nothing for, you know, three decades, just 500 rejections, eight unpublished books before I actually broke through. But, uh, I always came to it out of a sort of a necessity, you know what I mean? Because I feel like, uh, you know, the, I wrote my first novel when I was 19 and, and, you know, started off strong. It was about these five guys in Grant County Jail and Euphrata. And then uh, by the time I get to the second act, I sort of followed them one by one as they were paroled. And, uh, and then it just started to delineate and get away from me. And then by the end, it was just about a 19-year-old guy trying to write his first novel. And so, you know, dug a hole, buried it, salted the earth, did that two more times, wrote three terrible novels, didn't really have any, you know, I just knew they weren't good. I knew it was going to take a long time to get good. But again, it wasn't really why I was doing it. I just, I just, this, 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 uh, this, this opportunity to accrue genuine experience by inhabiting other characters. I just, it makes me – I feel like it makes me a more expansive person. I mean, it make, makes me a better dad. It makes me a better husband. It makes me a better friend, better person. So like I'd still be doing it. I'd probably be a couple books behind if I had to still do – and I've worked every you know menial job you can think of. I mean I, I telemarketed sunglasses. I hacked up roadkill at a wildlife refuge. I checked gas meters. Uh, you know, uh, I've slung pasta. I've been a bartender. I've been a waiter. I've been a busboy. I've uh, – Everything I didn't clean septic tanks, thank God. That's about that's about it. But uh, the thing about being a writer again that kept me going is that you realize that no matter what you absorb in life, every every crappy relationship I was ever in, every dead end job, every time I took a steel toe to the face, I'm always aware of the fact that somehow that's going to inform something I write someday. Like almost every day, something happens to me, and I I can't guess at what it is. Uh, almost every day something happens to me that, that will somehow make it into my fiction. It may just be something small. It may be something big, but I don't know what it is. I have no way of knowing. So it keeps me open to life. It makes me like a blotter. I'm just always uh, hungry for new experiences. I'll try pretty much anything. Although, you know, I've tempered that a little now that I have kids. Um, but, you know, I was always a bit of a daredevil. I would try anything. So that's another reason. I mean, it just it, it just really serves several important functions in my life. So, I mean, it's just kind of a no-brainer to do it. Just lucky for me, somebody finally published me, and I found a readership. You know, otherwise, I'd, I'd I, you know, I'd probably be putting needles in my arm or something. Honestly, I do think that's probably would be my. I had a lot of friends that turned into junkies, and I just lost a friend who was a junkie for thirty years last month. And like, I, I mean, that's probably the way I would have gone if I didn't have something to sort of, you know, get the tiger by the tail with. Kind of thing. I'm a mess. I really am. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, I just finished a book called Mike Munoz Saves the World. It's a great American landscaping novel, which is another job I had. I was a landscaper. Um, I always thought I would write a novel of, about class in America because I grew up as kind of a poor working class kid in, in a sort of affluent community on Bainbridge Island once my dad moved us there. And, um, you know, so I was always having kids like drop me off at the end of the driveway so they wouldn't see where I lived kind of thing. And like I always wanted to explore class in America and I always thought I would take a different tact than I did. I thought I would do it more like west of here where it was a big world beater and I have multiple points of view spread out geographically, possibly over time. But then I realized that really all I needed was just one irreverent working class voice. And I also realized that it was going to be a comedy, that I wasn't going to rein my comedy in with this one. Because, you know, I'm always trying to balance the comedy with the pathos. With this one, it has pathos. 
it's got hard or whatever, but I just really let myself be as funny as I wanted with this book, and it was just so fun to write. I'm just really, I mean, I was cracking myself up, so, and that doesn't always happen. I'm just so, I don't want it to end. I've got a couple more months rewriting it, but I really don't want it to end because it's just so much fun. And I think it'll resonate with a lot of people because uh, the 99 percenters, which by the time it's published in three years will be the 99.99 percenters. Um, I just think there's a lot of misconceptions about poverty uh, and, you know, the decisions people who live in poverty make, uh, you know, just like uh, smoking cigarettes, for instance, which seems illogical and dumb on the surface because it costs them $10 a day and they're poor. So how can they do that? But like what a lot of people fail to realize is that, uh, you know, people who live in poverty are, are, are 85% of them are clinically depressed. And, uh, you know, if you're working two jobs and you have three kids and uh, you don't want to get out of bed in the morning and you're up late smoking starts to sound like a bargain at 10 bucks a day. You know, it gets you through your breaks. It gets you between jobs. It curbs your appetite. Uh, things like that. Things like, uh, you know, why do, why do poor people eat all this fast food when, you know, it's bad for them and everything else? Well, you know, you, you go work two jobs and have three kids that want something else. Each want something different for dinner and also live in a place where cooking sometimes isn't an option because you have to deal with uh, rodents and, and pa- you know, pests and roaches and things like that. So just, you know, I wanted to sort of break those things down in sort of a narrative landscape so that, you know, so that, uh, you know, I don't know. I just seem like a good dialogue. I don't fuck, I'm just crazy, aren't I? Sorry. So the short answer is yes. Thanks. Look for that in about three years. All right. Thanks. Thank you very much for um, clapping for you at me. Be happy to personalize any books for anybody who's interested. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.